Hello, this is Peggy Joyce Ruth. Welcome to our podcast and hope you enjoy this teaching. If you would like to listen to more in-depth teachings, please sign up for our Psalm 91 family at PeggyJoyceRuth.org. Those of you that weren't here last week, we started a two-part series on forgiving others. And so, Father, I thank you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit tonight. I thank you that you're just going to make this come alive on the inside of us. Holy Spirit, we ask you to have your will and your way in this service. Now, we said last week that when forgiveness occurs, it causes a miracle literally to explode, and it goes in two different directions. It goes outward and inward at the same time. In other words, when that miracle occurs, it benefits us on the inside and it also benefits the one that's being forgiven. And we looked last week strictly from the angle of what personal forgiveness does for us, what it does on the inside of us when we're willing to forgive. And we named four benefits now. We said number one, that our willingness to forgive is first of all going to be the only way in which we'll be forgiven because there's a spiritual law involved, the law of sowing and reaping. And that's why Jesus said if you don't forgive, you're not going to be able to be forgiven. And then number two, we said that our forgiveness of others now will shut off Satan's avenue to be able to come in with the tormentors, the, the bitterness and the resentment and the hatred, which is literal torment to the one who's not willing to forgive. Number three, we said that forgiveness is the prerequisite for a strong faith. So therefore, it's the prerequisite then for having our prayers answered. So the number three benefit then is that as we forgive, it's going to increase our faith and it's also going to bring us to a place of seeing more of our prayers answered. Number four, forgiveness stops the negative drain that unforgiveness will have on our immune system and upon our physical strength. So when we're willing to forgive then, we have definitely done ourselves a favor. Now this week we're going to look at it though from the other aspect. We're going to see how it is actually a ministry into which every born-again child of God is called. If you're a child of God, you've been called into this ministry. Now you can look it up later, but 2 Corinthians 5.18 said that God reconciled us back to himself through forgiveness in Jesus Christ. But it doesn't stop there. It says, and he has now given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Every single one of us are called into a ministry of reconciliation. Did you know that you're called to that ministry? A lot of people are not even aware that they're called into that ministry. Some people are not aware of what the ministry of reconciliation is. We're going to be looking at one very important facet of that ministry. It takes in a lot of things. But every time we choose to forgive somebody, we have just operated in one facet of that ministry. That's a part of it. Because see, forgiveness, what it's all about is bringing people back into the presence of God, reconciling them back into God's presence. Now a lot of people get real nervous when they hear you say that you have the power and the authority to forgive sins. But relax, because they got nervous back in the time of Jesus when he said that he had the power to forgive sins. If you'll remember, the Pharisees said, who is this man that he's going around saying that he has the authority to forgive sins? Well, I want to give you just a little bit of scriptural background. We looked at a story last week where he proved his authority because of the man's healing. But in Matthew 28, 18 and 19, we find that Jesus said that all authority, both in heaven and on earth, had been given to him. 
He said, every bit of the authority, the authority to do anything in the heavens and on earth, he said, I have it. And that included the authority to forgive sins. And then when he was about ready to ascend to the Father, he turned around and he gave that authority to us as believers. But you know what? Very few Christians operate in that awesome responsibility. A lot of Christians don't even know they have that responsibility, but very few operate in it. I want us to see that it's not a suggestion that God's made to us. It is a commandment. We are commanded to operate in that. We're commanded to forgive. That's a part of the ministry. Number one, it's for the purpose of freeing us, like we talked about last week. But also, it's a ministry that's going to benefit the one being forgiven. It's a part of our ministry as Christians on this earth. Now, we're going to spend the whole time dealing with our willingness to forgive others. But before we go into that, I want us to think for just a minute about those times when maybe we're the one that's in the wrong. I want you to look at Matthew 5, verse 23. I felt like we just had to touch at least on the fact that there's going to be times that we're the one wrong and what he tells us to do when that's the case. Matthew 5, this is a part of the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And in verse 23, he says, If therefore you are presenting your offering at the altar, and all of a sudden you remember that your brother has something against you, you remember that you've done something and your brother is offended with you, he says, leave your offering there before the altar and go your way. In other words, he's saying, before you ever come to me and get forgiveness, just leave your offering there and go your way and first be reconciled to your brother first be reconciled. This is one of the few times that God doesn't say run to me first. In most things he's saying you run to me first when something happens. But this is one time that he's not saying run to me first. He's saying you leave that there and first you go be reconciled to your brother and then you come and you present your offering. He's saying you go get it right first. So it's very important. God's telling us that we need to ask forgiveness from someone when we've offended them. Now, the temptation is to go to the altar and go to God and to get his forgiveness, which is good, but then it's a temptation to think, well, time will take care of it with my brother. Pretty soon, you know, he'll forget what I've done. But see, that's not what the Bible teaches. In every one of the parables of Jesus, when it was talking about forgiveness, I think it's interesting to note that the person in those parables always asked to be forgiven. Ask and it shall be given. Now, from time to time, we're going to find that we're all going to do something every once in a while that's going to offend somebody else. And God doesn't want us to excuse it. He doesn't want us just to ignore it and hope that forgotten. He tells us in Romans 12 verse 18 that we need to get it right. He says, as far as it lies in your power to do so, he says, you live in peace with every single person you come in contact with. Now, there's times when it's not in our power to make it all okay. But when it's in our power to go and make it right, he's saying we need to do that. So we need to ask ourselves, first of all, am I the type person where it's hard for me to be able to look at somebody and say, I was wrong, please forgive me. See, our old pride gets in the way, and that's hard sometimes. But every one of us are going to make mistakes in our human state. But when we blow it, God requires us to admit it and to be able to look at that person and say, I was wrong, please forgive me. Now, it indicates right here in verse 24 that our offering might not even be acceptable to God if we don't go and make it right first. That's the indication in verse 24. 
So this is important for us to remember that if we've offended somebody, we need to go and ask. But it doesn't get us off the hook and keep us from being admonished to forgive if somebody's not willing to ask us. You know, it really, that, that's not a two-way street. God still requires us to forgive whether they ask us to forgive them or not. And if you'll remember Jesus and Stephen both, when they were being put to death, both of them prayed for forgiveness for their offenders. Now, they weren't asked to do so. Jesus on the cross said, Father, forgive them. Stephen, when he was being stoned to death, he said, Father, forgive them. And I think it's interesting to note that both of them gave a reason. You know, not just Father, forgive, but Stephen says, don't lay this sin to their charge. And Jesus said, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. And you know, I thought about that and I thought, you know, it'd be a little bit hard in the natural for Stephen or Jesus, either one, to think that their offenders didn't know what they were doing. Not only did they mock Jesus, not only did they spit on him, but they stuck thorns in his forehead, they beat him. And the Bible says that they could find no just cause to kill either one of these men. So it seems as if that crowd knew exactly what they were doing. But you know, Jesus had a reason when he said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. He wouldn't have said that if it hadn't been the truth. And so the Lord began to show me that what it was, they didn't realize that they were fighting against God. And a lot of times we're going to see people doing things that are wrong and we need to operate in that ministry of forgiveness because in an overall sense, they don't realize that they're really fighting against God. They don't realize they're literally putting their life in jeopardy. And you may be the one to stand in the gap for that person and save their life. Now I'm going to show you later the significance of what happened when Stephen chose to forgive. We can't even begin to comprehend the power that is released out there in the spiritual realm when we're obedient to the Word of God to forgive. There's a power that's released every time, and our minds cannot even comprehend that power that we release. Now, I want you to turn to Matthew 18, verse 18. Now, this is a scripture with which you're familiar, but I want us to look into it a little more deeply. I want us to see where the roots from which this scripture comes. It says, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. What do you think about when you read this verse? Every time I read this verse, I think of binding and loosing evil spirits. And most of you do too. And that's true. But what is it telling us to do here that will bind up or loose these things in the spiritual realm? What are we being told to do here? See, every time we think we understand a scripture, we need to read ahead of it and behind it and see the context in which it's written. Now, a lot of people just look at that scripture and they just think, well, that's a faith scripture. If you bind it, it's bound, and if you loose it, it's loosed. But when you read this scripture in context with the rest of the chapter, you find out that it's talking about forgiveness here. That's what the, this whole chapter 18 is dealing with sin and the forgiveness of sin. And if you'll read the verses preceding this verse 18, it's talking about restoring somebody, forgiving somebody, and bringing them back into restoration after they've sinned. Then he goes right on into verse 18, and he's still talking about forgiveness on down there in verse 21. He goes through verse 18 and 19 and 20. He's still talking about forgiveness in verse 21 when Peter says, well, Lord, talking about this forgiveness, how many times am I supposed to do it? 
And then as soon as Jesus gets through telling him how many times to forgive, he goes right into the parable on forgiveness in verse 23. So this whole chapter now is dealing with forgiveness. So when you see verse 18, you need to realize that this is a powerful truth on forgiveness. That's what it's all about. Jesus is saying, when you don't forgive, you're binding up that sin and you're binding it to yourself. And it's even possible to bind that sin to the one who sinned. See, the things we hate, the things that we refuse to forgive in somebody else will later come back to haunt us every single time. Because what we're doing, we're binding it up when we refuse to forgive. That's why a lot of times when you'll see alcoholism or, or you'll see child abuse or, or maybe someone who is very bitter over divorce, and then you'll see that later being handed down in that family. One son will develop such a hatred and such an intolerance toward his father, maybe for being an alcoholic or, or maybe such a hatred for the situation, and yet in the next generation he himself may become an alcoholic or his son after him. Social workers, I've read a lot of articles, and, and they find that many, many times a child who has been physically abused will often turn out to be a child abuser. And I thought about that, and I thought, why? It's because that hatred and that unforgiveness binds that sin up, and it literally binds that curse to the person who's not willing to forgive. And then forgiveness can also, as we come into that, what it does, it begins to loose that person who sinned and free that person from sin. And so when we read verse 18, if you'll read it in context, then you can realize that it's saying whatever you bind through unforgiveness on earth will be bound in the heavenlies. But whatever you loose through forgiveness will be loosed in the heavenlies. Now, the example of Stephen being stoned when he cried out and he said, Father, forgive them. This was especially significant because if you'll read back in, in Acts, we find out that Paul was holding the coats of the ones that were murdering Stephen. And scholars believe that Stephen's forgiveness, when he spoke out that forgiveness, that that is what eventually released Paul in the spiritual realm to come into the kingdom. We have been given the authority to release people from their sins. We've been given that privilege and that authority. And this is a part of the ministry of reconciliation. Now, I want you to put a marker here, and I want you to turn over to John 20, 23. Because I want you to see that the Lord reiterates this many, many times throughout the Word of God. And this is a companion scripture to the Matthew 18, verse 8. Because in John 20, 23, Jesus is speaking and he said, If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. Now that's quite a statement. He's given us that authority. If you retain the sins of any, those sins have been retained. Okay, like I say, it's that companion scripture. In, in Matthew 18, 18, whatever you bind up is going to be bound. Whatever you loose is going to be loosed. And then in 1 John 5, 16, you can look it up later. But it says, if you see a brother in sin, you can ask, and God will for you forgive that brother that's in sin. That's a part of the ministry of reconciliation. And we're going to find that there are points in every one of our lives when we're going to see a brother sinning. And we're supposed to forgive them. And we do that, we can literally take the weight of the world off of people in the area of forgiveness when we operate in that authority that God's given to us. It's a part of the ministry that God has given to each one of us. Now, last year when we studied personal forgiveness, 
we found from Isaiah 53, verse 5, and also from Hebrews 9.22 in the Amplified, and then from Colossians chapter 2, verse 14 and 15, we learn that forgiveness involves the removal of three different things. Not just the sin, but when a person is truly forgiven God's way, it removes also the guilt and the consequences. Every single time you find God's forgiveness, it includes all three. Now that was good news when we heard that God literally wiped the slate clean for us. And he nailed every bit of the debt that we owed. He nailed it to the cross. And that was shouting ground. But you know, we have to realize that that wonderful gift from God that he gave to us, if we're going to receive it, we're going to have to be willing then to offer that same kind of forgiveness to those that have wronged us. We've got to be willing to forgive not only the sin, but the guilt and the consequences. All three steps are involved in the giving of forgiveness. Sometimes you find people that hold the sin over a person's head all their life. Other people will say, okay, I've forgiven you, but they're always doing little subtle things to try to make that other person feel guilty. You know, they want them to feel just a little bit guilty. And then if we pass those first two tests, sometimes we'll find out that we'll forgive and we really don't forgive the guilt, but it's a little bit tempting to think that they should still suffer just a little bit of the consequences. We think after all, after all the pain that they've caused and all the problems they've caused with their sin, surely they don't expect to get loose scot-free. But God offers forgiveness to us freely, whether we ever repent or whether we receive it or not. He's offered it to us. It's still there. It's been offered. It's been bought. It's been paid for. It's been freely given, and it's undeserved. And we can do no less, no matter what's been done to us personally. We have to freely give that forgiveness, no matter how undeserving that person may be. Whether they're deserving or not, that's not our business. Our business is simply to offer our forgiveness, to be willing to forgive, to release that sin, to release the guilt and the due and merited punishment. Now that sounds very unfair when you hear it and we think, Lord, surely you're not expecting that of us. But we don't realize that we're doing ourselves a favor. Anytime we try to step in and we try to be the judge, when we try to be the one that is the judge, it never works. And all it does is bring in the tormentors. Now the one being forgiven may walk away and may not receive once we've offered the forgiveness. They may not receive it, but that's not our worry. God doesn't tell us that we have to worry about the results. The father of the prodigal son did not run after that prodigal son and make him come back and try to bring him back. He didn't do that. But when the prodigal son came back, then that forgiveness was there. It had been offered and he received it. So if they don't accept it, it's not going to benefit them. But our call is simply to work always toward the goal of forgiveness and toward the goal of restoration. And it's not our right to ever come in and try to punish another person try to be the judge over another person. And you say, well, what about Hosea? You know, he kept Gomer, his wife, at home. He kept her isolated for a period of time. And he kept her away literally from herself, from her own sin, and he kept her away from her lovers. Wasn't that punishment? He was taking it into his own hands. No, that wasn't punishment. That was an act of restoration. That wasn't an act of punishment. It was a period of restoration, a restoring time, so that she could finally come back to enjoy the full rights of being the wife and the mother without the temptation of that sin that had pulled her away in the beginning. So within the lines of the authority that God has set up, 
an isolation period or, or a time of being dropped from ministry for a while is not necessarily unforgiveness if it's for the purpose of healing and restoring the person. Now, if someone who is in spiritual authority over us gives us a period of restoration time, that's not a punishment. That's a healing. That's something that God has set forth for restoring in the body of Christ. And we find that Gomer cooperated with Hosea. And he wasn't divorcing her. Forgiveness was there or he would have never brought her back in. But what he was doing, he was restoring her to full fellowship as she was able then to stand against that temptation. Now forgiveness, we're going to find, always does bring with it accountability. If you'll really look at it, you can see the difference between what Hosea did to bring that restoration. You can see the difference between that and just trying to make somebody have to suffer the consequences. Because one is for punishment and vengeance, and the other one is for healing and it's for restoration. Okay, I want you to look at verse 19 over in Matthew 18. He was talking about forgiveness. Then he says in verse 18 that what you bind is going to be bound, what you loose is going to be loosed. And then immediately he says, again, I say to you. So we see that he's reiterating again what he's been talking about. He's not changing subjects. He's saying, again, I say to you that if any two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. He's still talking about forgiveness, but what he's doing, he's saying, again, I say to you. In other words, he's on the same subject and he's bringing it over into the arena of agreement. See, he's saying, get someone in agreement with you because agreement brings us into power. That's an added dimension of power. We've talked about the fact that one will put 1,000 to flight to 10,000. So there's times when there needs to be that agreement that we come in in the forgiveness. Now, it was in context with the teaching on binding and loosing there in verse 18 and what he was saying about agreement in verse 19 that Peter then said to Jesus there in verse 21, well, Lord, talking about this forgiveness business, how many times do we have to do it? So it was in context with all of that that Peter is saying, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Now, see, it was customary back then to forgive three times. And after you had been willing to forgive somebody three times, then you were free to just let them have what they deserved. That was a part of the law. Now, Peter thought that he was being really spiritual here when he said, Lord, do you want me to forgive even if they wrong me seven times? I'm, I'm willing, Lord, to go way beyond the requirement by law. Now, I'm sure he was not prepared for the answer he got because there in verse 22, Jesus said, no, I don't say to you up to seven times but I say 70 times seven. And that doesn't mean that we forgive 490 times and on the 491st time, then we're free to go our way. Jesus is saying here that we're to offer unlimited forgiveness. Now, I've heard people say, well, when I know that they've truly repented, then I'll forgive. Well, our flesh does feel that way. I don't know anyone in this room that, that your flesh doesn't say, if they're truly repentant, then I'm willing to forgive. See, forgiveness is not easy when that other person is obviously wrong. And it's certainly not easy when that other person stubbornly refuses to even admit that they're wrong. It's real easy to attach a condition onto forgiveness, onto our willingness to forgive. You know, if they see their error, or if they're truly sorry, or if they'll just come around and admit that they're wrong, you know, if they'll repent. 
But see, God provided forgiveness for us while we were yet sinners, Christ died. It wasn't after we had come to repentance. He offered that forgiveness. And we can't do any less. We have to forgive. And then right after he's telling Peter here to let his forgiveness be unlimited, then Jesus goes right into that parable of the unmerciful slave there in verse 23, the one that we studied last week, to convince us further that forgiveness on our part is an absolute necessity if we want to be forgiven. I mean, he doesn't leave any room for doubt when we go through this chapter, just one right after another. But like I said earlier, any time you want to know something about forgiveness, this is all in context if you'll read that whole chapter. So don't try to separate verse 18 from forgiveness because it goes on further to take in more. But we're going to find out that that binding and loosing is always going to start with forgiveness. Now I'm going to put a little side note here. There's a lot of people who think that it's okay to have some hatred in their heart toward people in history maybe somebody that's dead, and they feel like it's okay to harbor some unforgiveness toward these people for some injustice that they did in history. And it seems to be permissible simply because we don't know them personally. Have you ever noticed that it seems to be okay to, to have some unforgiveness toward somebody that you really don't know personally that's already dead and buried? And a lot of times what we've done, we've excused ourselves for some hatred that we've held on to and some unforgiveness that we've held on to toward even people that are living that we don't know personally. People like Madame O'Hare who has caused Christianity a lot of damage and, or, or maybe we'll excuse our unforgiveness toward people in general who are behind things like the abortion laws. Or maybe we hold unforgiveness toward a whole nation for something that they did wrong. Some people have a lot of hatred for the whole nation of, of Germany just because of what happened to the Jews. Or sometimes we'll hold some unforgiveness toward a whole race of people. But see, that kind of unforgiving attitude is often passed off as acceptable simply because it's not aimed at one particular person that we know personally. But see, it's not okay because it's still unforgiveness and it still do damage to us. Now, we can hate the injustice and we can hate the sin that's in the world. We can hate what's been done. But God never excuses our hatred toward a person because, see, human life is very, very precious to God. And he wants human life to be saved. He wants us to put out that forgiveness because he's interested in that person that's doing the sinning. He's not condoning the sin, but he's interested in the sinner. And every time that we're in hatred and unforgiveness, not only is it going to hurt us, but it keeps us from operating in our ministry. Now, I heard Dr. Cho once say that he had to actively forgive the entire Japanese race for what they had done to the Koreans. He said, I had to come to a place, and he said it wasn't easy, but he said, I had to forgive the Japanese race, and now he's sending missionaries into Japan. I heard Corrie Ten Boom say that she had to come to a place where she forgave not just the Nazi officers that she knew, but she had to forgive all of them for the hatred that was in her heart. And so I thought about that, and I began to realize that there has been a hatred in my heart and an unforgiveness in my heart toward the Buddhist religion. Now, I know that sounds strange to you, but I want you to follow with me. Right after Jack and I had gotten married, I witnessed to this lady that was a Buddhist. 
And I didn't have any power in my life. I didn't know how to do spiritual warfare. So when I started witnessing to her, I really got caught into a web, and it started a chain reaction of an emotional problem that lasted for about eight years. And then I got the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and I got deliverance. But one day I realized that anger would just rise up on the inside of me every time I would hear somebody say that they were a Buddhist. And it wasn't a righteous indignation for the sake of the kingdom. I mean, it was a, it was a personal anger. There was just a lot of unforgiveness that bubbled up on the inside of me because of what I had gone through. And I didn't want to have to admit that, but when I looked at it, you know, I excused it for a long time because I thought, oh, I just hate it because it's a religion that's causing people not to go to heaven. But that wasn't what it was. It was a personal anger. It wasn't against any particular individual. But I had to take care of that because it was doing damage to me on the inside. And so we need to go back in time. There may be brothers and sisters who have done something to you in your past, something early on that, that maybe you're still subconsciously hanging on to. There may be a neighbor or maybe somebody that you really didn't even know personally. And you may need to go back and you may need to forgive and release that person. Even if they're dead, you need to release them for your sake. You may be subconsciously even holding someone responsible maybe for the death of a loved one. If maybe they, through negligence or maybe a car wreck or, or bad judgment. Sometimes we hold unforgiveness and we don't even realize we're doing it. I had to choose to forgive this little boy that years ago set a fire in my mother and dad's garage and it burned their house. It was so uncalled for and so unnecessary. And I realized several years later that I was holding some unforgiveness toward that little boy because I really believe that because of a lot of things that happened, the stress and all that, I think that's one of the reasons that my dad went home early. And so I realized that I was holding some unforgiveness and I needed to forgive that child and release him. So we need to go back and mentally go back in history and make a checklist and loose yourself then from those areas of resentment that you're holding for things in the past. Also watch for grudges that maybe have accumulated. You know, it's real easy to pick up the offenses and the pet peeves of friends with whom you run. That's real easy to do. And sometimes you'll find out that your friend will forgive and you're still holding the grudge for them, you know, months and years after they've been willing to forgive. One of the most difficult areas is when you pick up a grievance for something that was done to members of your family. That's why you find these families that have feuds that go on for years and years. But don't do that. We are not justified to be unforgiving just because we think, well, that wrong wasn't done to me personally. It was done to somebody else. So picking up their grievance. It doesn't matter if the object of our unforgiveness has offended us personally or not. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if the object of our unforgiveness is someone who is dead or even if it's a group of people or, or maybe somebody that we really have never met personally. We still have to forgive them. We still have to release them because if we don't, we're binding that situation up in the spiritual realm and that's what it's talking about over there in Matthew 18 verse 18. Now, Stephen wasn't forgiving just one person. He said, Father, forgive them. There was a whole mob of people that were stoning him, and he forgave them. He forgave the whole group. Now, the Bible says that if we have ought against any, we're to forgive. Look at Mark eleven twenty-five. 25. 
Think sometime if we'll just really stop and just meditate on what this scripture is actually saying. He's just been talking about faith in verse 22, 23, 24. And then he says, whenever you stand praying in faith, forgive. The King James will say, if you have ought against any. But I love what the New American says. It says, if you have anything against anyone. <laughs> now, how much more all-inclusive can we get than that? Forgive if you have anything against anyone. You know, I think we'd be appalled if we knew how much emotional energy it really takes out of us when we, when we stay in unforgiveness. And God is saying whether the object of our unforgiveness is someone in the present or whether it's somebody in the past, whether they're dead or alive, whether the cause is just or whether it's a figment of our imagination, whether they've repented or whether they haven't repented, we have to choose to forgive, choose to release them in the spiritual realm if we have anything against anyone. Because if we don't, even talking about us personally, our prayers are going to be hindered and we're going to find out in verse 23, those mountains are not going to come down. We can talk to them all day long. They're not going to come down if we have something that we're holding against somebody. That situation is going to remain all bound up in the heavenlies. I'm even going to carry it a step further. Sometimes there's some unforgiveness and we haven't even stopped to categorize it as unforgiveness. It'll be so subtle. For instance, it'll be those times when maybe you can't even define your feelings. Have you ever heard somebody say, well, she just rubs me the wrong way? Or I can't put my finger on it, but there's something about that person that just bugs me. You know, now I know that none of us have done that, but I've heard other people do that. Surely we haven't done that. But those are really just subtle little unforgivenesses on the inside of us. If we have anything against anyone, God says to forgive. Now, Jesus didn't make it easy to be a disciple. It's not easy. It's never a pushover in our flesh because it requires toughness to be a disciple. It requires a lot of self-discipline, and it requires taking our old flesh and just crucifying that flesh. Now, I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians 13, and I want to read to you from the love chapter here because this is the attitude that needs to be coming forth from us at all times because we have God's love in us. This is talking about the God kind of love, and it says love is patient, love is kind, love is not jealous, love does not brag, it's not arrogant, it doesn't act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, it's not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in truth. When I read that list, I don't know about you, but that makes me squirm just a little bit. But when I get down to the end of verse 5, and I read that the God kind of love does not take into account a wrong suffered, I'm going to tell you what. Either we're going to fall out of our chair with the impact of that statement, or we're really not paying any attention to what it's actually saying. Now, I want you to let the impact of that verse 5 really just soak in. It's saying here that a person who's walking in the God kind of love does not even take into account a suffered wrong. I don't know about you, but I'm not there yet. But Paul here is using a banking term. He's using the term account. Remember we talked last week about how the king settled accounts. And we're going to find that it's very easy to keep a mental list against people, to keep an account, you know, 
it's like they've charged to us and we're keeping this account. Well, have you ever noticed how there's times when somebody can do something and it seems so insignificant, but boy, it's just the straw that breaks the camel's back? Have you ever wondered why that? It's because a ledger has been kept. Subtle little unforgivenesses have been held on to subconsciously and they've accumulated and finally all of a sudden then it's just more than they can handle and there's one thing and the straw breaks the camel's back. But Paul's saying here, don't keep a ledger. He's saying, don't take into account a suffered wrong. Now, have you ever seriously asked yourself, well, how on earth can I do that? How can I not take into account a suffered wrong? Is that possible? Well, I'm going to tell you what. It's nothing that we're going to be able to do unless we make a concentrated effort and say, Lord, that is a desire of my heart. I want to be able to start walking in that promise. Now, I'm going to give you five short steps on how to forgive other people and how to learn to fulfill that particular one. Number one, we're going to have to come to a living reality of God's forgiveness in our own life. We're going to have to quit soft-pedaling the sins in our life. We're going to have to see those sins through God's eyes the way He sees them. See, God sees sin as an abomination, and the reason He does is because He knows that it brings death to us. That's why He hates the sin. And then once we see sin the way God sees it in our own life, then by faith we're going to have to accept that cleansing blood that cleanses us because we can't earn our forgiveness. A person has to experience God's forgiveness before they're ever going to be able to be capable of giving forgiveness out. We can't give out that which we don't have. Now, later you can look up Luke 7, 43, but it tells us that an awareness of our being forgiven causes us to love more. Now, a lot of people think that, well, the people that have sinned the most, they're the ones that are going to be able to love the most. But you know, that's not what it's saying. It doesn't take having to have sinned a lot to be able to love a lot, because if that were the case, then it would be to our advantage to go out and do a whole lot of sinning, so we'd be more capable of loving. But it's that one who has the most awareness of what it means to be forgiven. And that can be a person who's tried all their life to live a pure life. They can have sometime a greater awareness of God's forgiveness than maybe somebody that's lived in sin. So it's not the sin that makes us love more. It's the revelation of the forgiveness of God. And the only way we're going to get that is to go before God and we're going to have to say, God, I want you to reveal to me. I want you to make that revelation come alive on the inside of me to understand the awesomeness of the forgiveness that you've given to me, that you've offered to us. Now, I think Zacchaeus is probably a perfect example of understanding not only repentance, but understanding personal forgiveness. And I want you to look at that in Luke 19, verse 1. <clears throat> Jesus was passing through Jericho, and it says, Behold, there was a man by the name of Zacchaeus, and he was a tax collector, and he was very rich. And he was trying to see Jesus, and he was unable because of the crowd. So he runs ahead, he climbs up into this sycamore tree so he can get a look at Jesus, and Jesus passes by and stops and looks up, and he says, come down, Zacchaeus, I'm going home with you. Immediately, we see conviction coming over him. So he hurries down, and he receives the Lord gladly. He didn't reject that conviction. He gave to it. And now the people see it, and they began to grumble because they think, well, he's going to the home of a person who's a sinner. 
But Jesus knew what he was doing. And in verse 8, Zacchaeus stopped and he said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. If I have defrauded anyone of anything, I'll give it back four times. Now we see that Zacchaeus changed. He not only turned away from the sin, but he made restitution for the sin. Now Zacchaeus would be known as a modern-day IRS man. But see, back in that day and time, it was illegal not only to get the taxes for the government, but also they could take extra for themselves, and that's why they were so hated. So he could have been justified in his position. He could have tried to justify what he did. But he knew that true forgiveness from God demanded a change in conduct. He understood that. See, the God kind of forgiveness does not allow the evil to prosper. It doesn't allow the evil to continue. Jesus took this business of forgiveness, he took it very, very seriously, and so did the ones being forgiven. Throughout the Gospels, you'll find that every time that Jesus would forgive someone, he'd say, go and sin no more. He didn't say, go and slack off. He said, go and sin no more. Now, that's pretty plain. When Zacchaeus repaid all that he owed, even more, this was not a works righteousness. He wasn't trying to earn his forgiveness here. No one can earn forgiveness. What he did here was done in gratitude for the forgiveness that had already been freely offered to him. And it was also an act then of change. It was symbolic of the fact that he had changed. He was going another direction now. See, he brought forth the fruit of repentance. Thank you for listening. Please share this teaching with anyone you think it would minister to. If you would like to listen to more in-depth teachings, please sign up for our Psalm 91 family at PeggyJoyceRuth.org.